The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, even in that last song, we, we notice a tension of declaring with thanksgiving that you, Lord Jesus, have come, and then we finish saying, come, Lord Jesus. We recognize there's a time now where we live, a time of an already but not yet. You have come, and you are coming. And so we give thanks for what you have done in coming, Father, for what you have done in sending the Son and now we live in the, in the in-between time where we look forward to his coming and look forward to the finishing off of all the promises that have been made and kept, but not quite yet fully. And for help now in this time, that's what we ask. We ask for help. For help living in the middle. Help living when we see gaps between what we what we've read about and what we think about and what we hope for and what we see. So use this passage this morning, Lord, with its simple point. Use it as help for us to encourage us, to show us something of your nature and to kind of uh, step on that and press it down a little more and, and firm it up in our hearts. This is who you are, a faithful God. made promises and you keep them and you will keep them. Press that into us this morning from this passage and help us to follow through lots of words and lots of verses and some concepts that are maybe complicated. Help us to follow through all that and see the simple point at the end. And then build us up with that and make us as people that are strong That's what we ask for. Spirit of God, create that this morning in us, your people. Build your church for the honor of Jesus and for our good, we pray it. Thank you. Amen. There are times in every Christian's life where, where you wonder, what's God up to? Where is he? What's he about? Sometimes those are moments of pain and sorrow, and at other times they're, they're times of confusion and upheaval in circumstances where it just doesn't make much sense, and it, it seems hard. That's, that's true for everybody in life. It's, it's true across the board. It's hard for all people, but it's doubly hard when you're accustomed to thinking about God and thinking about God as walking with you as a help, as a strong support, as a... As a an aid in life, and then it seems that he's gone silent or absent or perhaps gone rogue and actually done this to you, afflicted you in some way, and then it's confusing. What's he up to? And can I trust him? Can I, can I depend on him or not? I thought so, but now I wonder. I don't see, I've read promises and I don't see where or how they're going to come to pass. Where is God and what's he doing? Our passage this morning touches on that sort of a question in a context of extreme hardship. 
Over the last couple weeks in the book of Jeremiah, we've been seeing similar themes developed. We've been looking at this prophet Jeremiah who the Lord sent to his people in Judah and in the city of Jerusalem roughly around the year 600 B.C. And he sent him with a message first calling his people to repentance, calling them back, and then finally saying that the final judgment of destruction is coming. It was hundreds and hundreds of years in coming, and now finally it's here. Jeremiah was delivering that message, and also at the same time often woven through it, as we've seen, a message about hope, because also what's coming is a new covenant. We talked about this last week, God's love to his people, a new covenant. A way that that God would finally reach down and do in us what we need to, to renew us as a people, to draw people to himself in Jesus work in our hearts and cause us to know him in an internalized way within. That also is coming, but that's a ways down the road. And in the meantime, looking around, it seems like I don't know how that could possibly come to pass because look at all this. A mess and a disaster, really. And so to help people with that, that tension to, to help them to draw near to him and to depend on him, Jeremiah 32 shows us that God worked in a sign, a, a particular circumstance involving the purchase of a field, a sign that he lays down to show his trustworthiness and, and to draw people to trust him, to depend on him. A tough message when you can't see it, but that's what he gets at. Verses 1 to 5 give us the setup. The Babylonian army has come a couple times, but now they're here for the last time, and they're surrounding the city of Jerusalem, besieging it. And Jeremiah is imprisoned within the city. So the city's in a prison, and then Jeremiah's in a prison in the city because he keeps talking about how the Babylonians are going to conquer the place, and that's really bad for morale, and nobody likes to hear that. So they put him in jail, and while he is detained, Something happens to him. Follow along with me as I read verses 6 through 15 of Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver, signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales, Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Maseh, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, And put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. God says, Jeremiah, buy this piece of land from your cousin. Yes, I know that you can't even get there because the Babylonian army is encamped all around, including there. And yes, they're going to conquer and destroy this place. And so yes, that land is worthless. Right now. But buy it and make it completely public and protect it so that it lasts. Make it a registered purchase so that everybody knows because in the future, a long time from now, Fields and vineyards and houses will again be bought in this land. That's what God says, and that's a message that creates this dilemma for Jeremiah because he's thinking, how? I just can't see that happening. Spiritually, we are a wreck, and circumstantially, we're about to be conquered and marched off as slaves. We're finished, and that's surely because you're finished with us. I don't get it. And that's what he then prays, verses 16 and following. Follow along with me as I skip down through 16 to 35, long section. I'm just going to touch on a few verses here and there. As you kind of follow through, I'll cite some verses and you put your finger on them and look at them. You brought us out of Egypt, Jeremiah is praying. That's verses 20 and 21. Like you swore to do. You promised that you'd bring us out of there and you'd bring us back to this land, and you did it. You kept the promise that you made to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, and you put us in this land of milk and honey, in verse 22. And we rejected you. We broke your law as given to Moses in the Mosaic covenant. Verse 23. And we didn't just break it, we smashed it. It's totaled. That's what Jeremiah says. And then the Lord agrees and even elaborates, 27 to 35, it was indeed a tremendous and persistent and appalling and atrocious, and put any other adjective you want in there, rejection of God and his covenant kindness. Verse 30, God says, The children of Israel and Judah, the offspring of Abraham, have done nothing but evil, nothing but provoke me to anger continually for the last thousand years. Think of the 400 plus years of the judges and the 400 plus years since David down to this point. Eight, nine thousand years. Constantly, for a thousand years, they've been poking me in the eye, poking me in the eye, provoking me, provoking me, provoking me. They turned their back to me, not their face. Verse 33. They turn away, always. Verse 29, in every one of their houses, they worshiped other gods, making offerings to them. I look across the city and I look on every housetop. Their people gather there to worship and they bow down to me. No, to all the gods of the nations. And in my house, verse 34, the temple that I told them to build through Moses, I told them to build a temple, come there, worship me, bring sacrifices. That's the house where I will dwell. In my house, they defile that as well. And in fact, verse 35, this blows my mind. I have no idea where they got this. They even do what the other nations do to worship their gods. They offer up their own children as burnt sacrifices to the so-called gods of the nations. What an abomination. 
So yeah, the covenant is broken. And Jeremiah says, yeah, that's what I was saying. I, I, I read Moses. I, I, read, I read the law of Moses. I totally understand that. I've read the covenant. I understand it. That's what I've been talking about. It looks completely, completely, completely broken. And so here's the dilemma. We've ripped apart the covenant, verse 25. The final step, this is written down in the covenant as well, the final step for all this rejection of you is that you've rejected us and kick us out of the land, and that is imminent. The Babylonians are about to conquer us, and yet you say, buy this field for money and make sure everybody knows it because there's a future here. How? How can that possibly be? Particularly for us, as we read the, you know, you get to the end of this, verse, verse 35 there, and you think, like, whoa. So Israelites in Jerusalem take their newborn babies and put them on a fire and burn them alive to worship the gods. That's in the Bible? Some of the Israelites? Yeah. The last thing stated, because that's kind of like, <laughs> I am done. I'm done. So, why buy this land? Again, why? There's a future here? I don't get that. It seems like we are, we are done. I don't see how we can actually believe there's a future here. And I don't see how you can have anything to deal with us. I don't see how that's going to happen. And so then, verse 36. Follow along with me as I read verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. 37. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, and the cities of the hill country, and the cities of Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. That's what God says. And so two observations from that final section. 
The first one's much longer than the second. God is faithful, even if we can't see how and can't see it now. God is faithful, even if we can't see how and can't see it now. God's answer to Jeremiah's puzzlement, if you will, is, is essentially, verse 27, I'm God. Is anything too hard for me? I'm God. Is anything too hard for me? Of course, for sure, this mosaic, this old covenant's broken. It's finished, and the city's finished, and the people will be cast out, driven from here by me. Yes. However, I'm going to do something, verse 37 and following. I will indeed gather Abraham's offspring from all the distant lands back to this place and make them dwell here in safety. Here's that phrase again, the fourth time in these three chapters. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Verse 41, I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. And 42 and following, I'll bring upon them all the good that I promised them. I will restore their fortunes. Notice two words in that section. Faithfulness, in verse 41, and promise, in 42. Not love or generosity Kindness, forgiveness, mercy, which are all extremely important words, are all extremely true, are all relevant in this context, just not what this is about exactly right here. God wants to emphasize something different for us this morning to, to think about. He's highlighting that he's going to act to plant the people back in this place because he is a faithful God. we're thinking about this morning, that he is a faithful God. He is a God who makes a commitment and then holds to it. Such that if, if we don't know what's going on and we can't understand the circumstances, at least we can know this, that God has said and therefore I can trust. I can depend on him. He makes a promise and he keeps it can't not. That's who he is and what he wants to emphasize here. But what is he being faithful to exactly? Now, at this point, I have to bring in something that is potentially a little complicated, especially if you've never been exposed to this kind of material before. So I'm going to try to introduce something about covenants here in a way that is clear and concise so we don't get lost in all the weeds. And understand, I am well aware there's a whole lot more detail we could talk about. But I'm going to try not to. Just try to keep it narrow for this morning purpose. Talk about covenants a little bit. Let me use an analogy I once heard and found kind of helpful. Think of the covenants of God. Remember last week we talked about covenants are a structured relationship between God and people. So God creates a covenant, a structured relationship. How is this thing going to work here between me and them? He creates that and he sets it up. Think of the covenants of God as a set of those Russian nesting dolls. You know, I'm talking about the, 
They're usually about this size, and they're, it's like a tube, hollow, on the outside very elaborately painted, usually like a, in a, like a traditional Russian woman in traditional country garb. But it's hollow, and you break it apart inside. There's another one. Similarly painted very elaborately, you break it apart, another one inside, so-and-so, so on and so on. Think of three nesting Russian dolls this, for this morning's purposes. First one on the outside, the Abrahamic covenant, where God promised Abraham a people as numerous as the stars in a place, they would dwell in a place with God as their God, they as his people, blessed by him. Second then, inside of that one, second doll, if you will, the Mosaic Covenant, where God clarified through Moses how that would happen. How this, this outer one's going to happen, let me clarify how. With a clear law and sacrifices to worship and atone for law-breaking, and a temple, a place where the atonement would be offered by priests who would do the, the sacrificing. It's all kind of clarified in that second doll, the Mosaic Covenant, a law to be followed and worship to be conducted. And that's the covenant that was totally broken apart by all the people. That's what we call the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. So there it is, the doll's crunched, shattered. So it's over, right? It's over. The old covenant's broken, but think of his dolls. Breaking that one did not break the outer one all around it. Did not break the Abrahamic covenant. And in fact, when the second one was broken apart, what it revealed is there's a third one inside. The third and final, the new covenant. That's verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. These three dolls here, Abrahamic, Mosaic, new. Second one's broken, yes, but God's going to make a new covenant and that's how he's going to keep his promise to Abraham to provide for him a people in a place with his blessing, to provide offspring for him because God is faithful to Abraham and to the promise he made to Abraham. Not because the people are able, not because Abraham deserved it, because God promised. And that settles it, because God promised. I hope that the structure there is clear enough and that I didn't get kind of mentally rabbit-trailed on the other questions about covenants. The focus here in this passage is on the faithfulness of God, not just his kindness or his love or his mercy. I committed myself to Abraham. I made him a promise that I would gather to him people and put them in a place and I'm going to keep that and I'm so faithful that I am going to make another covenant to keep my first one. I'm the Lord 
and there's nothing too hard for me. Now, because he's the Lord, because that's his nature, he's going to do that. Whether he tells us or not. But he very much wants everybody to understand that, to know it. And so, this, this comes back to the passage here, and so what he does is he establishes this elaborate purchase scheme to buy this piece of property and to have it testified to and witnessed and preserved because he wants everyone to know, I have made a promise that I am going to keep and I'm going to use my spokesperson, Jeremiah, as evidence. I'm going to tell him to put his money where his mouth is and buy this land because I know full well as you look around, it is in increasingly, as the, the siege mounds rise up against the city, it is increasingly difficult to believe there's a future here. It's increasingly difficult to look around and say, God actually will keep his faithful promise, his promise faithfully. So I want you to know, I'm going to illustrate it through Jeremiah and put it in public. Lays out a sign so that everybody can see what the future holds. When? Well, this actually happened. They, they sealed this deed. The people went away to Babylon. And they did come back in the 5th century. 70 plus years later, in a couple of different waves, the people came back. And they did buy land there. They did purchase fields and houses and conduct business. And they did rebuild the city. And it all actually came about. Jeremiah never saw it. He died in Egypt. But it happened. After his life. Is that what God's talking about? No. We, we talked about this last week. No, he's not. When does this actually finally fully happen in that new covenant in Christ. Think about this new covenant. In the new covenant in Christ, God faithfully, finally kept his word here. All of God's promises are kept in Christ, faithfully and strongly affirmed. In Christ, I will make you my people and you will be my God. In Christ, I will make you a faithful son, a faithful daughter of Abraham, and I will give to Abraham a countless lineage. And in Christ, I'll make you dwell safely in a land, not just in this land, but as Paul makes clear in Romans 4, I'll make you dwell safely in all of the land, in all of the earth. He gives them that land and more. Faithfully as promised, God does what he said he would do. So what do we do with that this morning? Well, I do think that there, for the person who is kind of thinking this through, maybe as an outsider trying to decide, do I, do I believe this Christian message? Do I... Do I buy this? There is something, I think, that is kind of a deep underlying 
coherence that is worth your attention. We're talking about thousands of years that all fit together. That God says something and then keeps it. You should look at that. You should consider this God who is faithful and works all of the dealings of all of the nations across centuries to bring about what he says he'll do. And I think you shouldn't throw away the Christian faith because you don't see it happening right now. God doesn't work like that. But look, he does work. But most of us here, I know, most of us here get that. And, and most of us here, you, you see the new covenant written in there. You, you were here last week and heard us talk about this, and it's not surprising to you. You understand that God has indeed, yeah, sure, he did that. He, he kept his promise, and he did it in the new covenant in Christ. So what do you do with that? Well, what are you supposed to bring out of this? You're supposed to look at this and see a faithful God which is important to us, I think, because probably all of us, if we're honest, have to say, I read through 36 and following, and I see in it, yes, very encouraging that that's been done now in Christ. However, that's sort of accomplished in my life right now. Sort of. Pick one. Do you sense any lack of safety in your life? Define that however you want. I will make them to dwell in safety. If you're a Christian, you have to say, I, I understand some of that. I experience some of that now. I have a rest and a security knowing that I'm in the hand of God. Yeah, right now. Yes. However, I also know vulnerability. Don't you? Define it however you want. Define it in every way. You know vulnerability. We still live in this world and we face danger and pain and loss and we know that, somebody said it today, we, we don't know if we're going to be here tomorrow. You don't know if your job's going to be here tomorrow, your health's going to be here tomorrow, your loved one's going to be here tomorrow. We face a world that looks at us with sometimes disregard, but sometimes disdain and sometimes straight up anger and persecution. So, yes, I, I can't deny it. In, in fact, God has acted in some ways to bring safety to, to me and to cause me to dwell in safety. But I really can't see in this world that ever becoming complete. And in the moment, I mean, come on, in the moment when you're sitting there looking at danger straight in the eye, the person's angry at you, you're in the hospital, where, whatever it is that you're sitting, you're saying, I don't see, God, I thought you were supposed to be at my side and carrying me through these things, and where are you? What are you up to? Can I depend on you or not? Still live in this world. You still face vulnerability and danger and loss and death. Take another phrase. 
I will put the fear of me in their hearts for their good, that they may not turn from me. Speaking for myself, I am prone to wander still. Speaking for you, so are you. And sometimes we who are his people, do you, do you know anything of the fear of the Lord in your hearts? Indeed, yeah, God has planted in us a, a new life. And so we are a people. As a Christian, God has kept this promise to make something different in you and new. And you know the Lord and you follow him and you see him. And his law is written on your hearts, we talked about last week. Yeah, indeed. And yet you wander off into all kinds of ridiculous suicidal sin. And it hurts me. And it hurts those I love, my children after me. Lord, I can't seem to, perhaps you cry, I can't seem to stop this pattern of sin. And, and frankly, I don't know why you wouldn't be more motivated to help me. Don't you dislike sin? Don't you want me to walk in holiness? Doesn't it say you want to give me this heart? But I, I keep, I keep, I don't want to, but I keep. And why don't you, where are you? You said. Is he trustworthy or not? Is he trustworthy or not? I grabbed just two things there, but you could pick other things from your life. I deliberately grab things that feel like affliction from the world and things that feel like sin in my own heart. Fill in for yourself along that spectrum. We bump into stuff in this world that makes us wonder. I read the Bible and I see you doing something and then I look at my life and I wonder, where are you? God has not exactly offered up a field purchased to us, but has he laid down any other sign to you as evidence that he can be trusted. Evidence of his faithfulness. Has he? There may be circumstances in your life where you can say, God showed up here and God showed up here and God showed up here. That's indeed, note those things, write them down, hold on to them. But there is one thing in particular that God has intentionally offered up to us and said, I want you to look at this and I want you to realize something here. He has been raised to newness of life. Christ was crucified and Christ was raised as a sign to us. The next life has begun. What's going on at the end of the Gospels and the beginning of the book of Acts is this laying down of a massive sign that we are supposed to look at 
similar to how Jeremiah would have looked at this field purchase. We're supposed to look at it and say, I don't see everything going on, but this much I know. The tomb was empty and the spirit has been poured out. The new life has begun. I've been given a down payment that lives in me and something is at work. So we often work one of two ways. We look at our circumstances and say, where's God? Or we look at God at work in us and then look at our circumstances through that lens. This is the faithful God, Christian. He offers himself to you. I have made a promise and I kept it. Trust me. Where's the evidence? Look at the tomb and the outpoured spirit. The new life has started. And look through that at everything else. Please, for your own good. Christ has been raised. The Spirit has been outpoured and does live within you. So all I'm doing here is I'm holding up this, this, the dilemmas and the realities and saying oftentimes our difficulty comes when we look through the dilemma and question God. We should look through God and question the dilemma. Why? Because this much you know. The tomb was empty and the Spirit has been outpoured. God kept his promise. God sent Christ. God moved into residence in your heart. And he will finish what he started. Because he's a faithful God. I come to the end of that for myself this morning and I say, that's pretty simple. It is. The invitation to you is to believe it. The God who walks through life with you is indeed faithful and will carry you all the way through the storms of this world to a land that is fully safe. And will carry you through all the struggles with sin in this life to a place where you are finally and fully glorified and struggle no more. Even if you can't see how and can't see that now, he'll do it. And he'll do it because he really, 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 really wants to, which is the second shorter point. It is God's joy to be faithful in doing good to his people forever. It is God's joy to be faithful in doing good to his people forever. So we're celebrating Advent this, this month leading up to Christmas, and today the word mentioned was joy, and we usually think of it in the sense of joy to the world or come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. In other words, we think of it usually as joy in people, which is fine and appropriate. Joy for Christians because Christ has come. Joy for the world because they can know Christ. But verse 41 puts a little spin on that. I will rejoice in doing them good. So the good done to us gives us joy. But there's a joyful God 
I will rejoice in doing them good. It would be easy to look at this circumstance in the city of Jerusalem with the armies all around. It would be easy to look at many of the things that go on in our own lives and think that God, yeah, okay, I guess I can buy the fact that God is faithful, that God has made a promise, and that God has kept it. But he probably isn't very happy about that, given that we've spent a thousand years poking him in the eye. Probably, God, because he's a, a man of his word, the God of his word, probably he holds to that grudgingly. A number of us have been in work situations where you bid for work, you bid for a job. You evaluate the circumstances, you think how much it's going to cost you, how much your time is worth, how much time it's going to take, how much of your company's resources will be expended. You write down a number, you push it across the table, and sometimes you get the contract, and you sign it, and then three days later you realize that's why they were so thrilled, and that's why I got the contract. Bummer. But I'm a man of my word, so I do the work, counting down the months till it's over. Or I try to get out of it somehow if I can. Or I try to massage the situation. Is that how you think of God? With his people, with you, as he faithfully carries you through the mess that is your life. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will be just beside myself with delight As I keep my promise and make all the necessary sacrifices, I make all the necessary sacrifices myself. I make all the necessary sacrifices to create and then adjust and fix the situation so that good is done to my broken people. I'm thrilled for that opportunity. I can't wait to do them good. I can't wait to give them a heart that is after mine. I can't wait to give them the fear of me. Not because I love scaring them. That's not what he means. I can't wait to give them a reverence of me. I can't wait to give them a true and accurate comprehension of me, an otherworldly reality that wants to draw near to them, to show them glory and to bless them. I'm delighted to do that. I rejoice as I think about it. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross to make it real. God is a faithful promise keeper, but it's not drudgery, it's delight for him. Because in that, in that working out, in that sacrificing, and in that long suffering, in that bearing with what he gets out of the end of it, is you drawn near to him for his glory, which is God's total pleasure. Again, at the end of this, I think that's important for me. 
I'm very duty-oriented. I do what I'm supposed to do. And it's, it's almost mind-boggling to think that God's not duty-oriented. He's delighted. He's thrilled to do you good. He's thrilled to make the sacrifice needed to make the covenant to keep all of his promises. He reigns from heaven now over a world that has fallen and is a wreck. Happy. Rejoicing. Because he looks at all of it and knows that all of it is working together to accomplish his purposes and do good to his people. To plant us firmly and finally in a place of rest with him, in, in union with him. He pursues it with all of his heart and all of his soul. With vigor. Not just because he said he would, but because he wants to. That's a different God. That's, that's a God that is singing as he saves. Not grumbling. That's a God who smiles as he works out of you trouble. As he draws you to himself and fixes you. It's a God that can be depended on. Not just because of what he does, but because of how he is. And that's the God who offers himself to you at Christmas. And says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Not because I have to, because I promised. But I promise because I want to. So Come. If you're not a Christian, come. If you are a Christian, come again. Draw up near to, depend upon, and read all of life through this lens that the God who is faithful, happily so, is the God carrying you, walking with you, and promising you the certainty, the end of his blessing and glory. Even if you can't see how and you can't see it now, that's coming. Trust him. Let me pray. Father, it, this, this little story in this passage is I find it interesting, and I find it also interesting that Jeremiah never saw it fulfilled. But he trusted you anyway. I pray, Lord, for your people here. You would give us hearts to trust you. Increasingly so, to trust you more. To trust you through different difficulties that we haven't yet faced. To answer different questions with a, I don't understand, but I believe the Lord. We need your help with that, to, to respond like that to life, so please give it to your people here. 
the different circumstances that we face, the different ways in which the new covenant blessings have come already but not yet fully. We face all kinds of different stuff. Meet your people, please. And minister to them in ways that builds faith, builds dependence on you. So build a church like that, please, Lord. Cause us to rest in you and draw the world to you in faith. We say thank you for it. Thank you for your faithful keeping of your promise, for your trustworthiness for the future. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.